In an age of fake news and so-called truthiness, the world sometimes feels untethered from reality. Today's guest uses her reporting and storytelling to ground her audience in science, even while her words reconnect us to our shared humanity and our relationship to the natural world. She's Alana Mitchell this week on Story in the Public Square. Welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller, also with the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. This week, we're joined by Alana Mitchell, an award-winning Canadian author, science journalist, and playwright whose work you may have seen in the New York Times, National Geographic, The Guardian, and many others. She joins us today from Toronto. Alana, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. You know, uh, so I, I mentioned, you know, you're, you're, you have all of these talents, author, playwright. Uh, you, uh, I'm curious, though, what drew you to science writing in the first place? Well, my dad was a scientist, and uh, I grew up with it. I mean, it was sort of, we sort of feasted on it at the dinner table. You know, my dad would teach his, uh, his classes at the University of Regina, which is a small university in the middle of, uh, you know, Saskatchewan. And he would, but he would come home at, and, you know, describe to us some of the experiments that he had done. He was a biologist. And uh, I, th I think it's kind of, um, it just was sort of bred in the bone, actually. Yeah, but the, but the, so, but you didn't become a scientist per se. You decided no. to write about it. Well, the other part of this is that my mother was an artist. And so for me, the, the, the quest has always been to marry science and art. And so I became a journalist, you know, to try to uh, bring science to life with, with words. I mean, it, it seems to me that it's really important now more than ever for science to have a translator. And that's sort of how I see myself. So one of the things that, we, that drew, us to you, drew you to our attention was a piece that you wrote recently in the New York Times about the leap second. And I was, right. I was just simply charmed by this article. I, I mentioned this to you before uh, we started talking. It, it, it sort of brings together science and people and international diplomacy. There are so many different layers to this. So let's maybe walk through it just a little bit. First of all, what is a leap second and why do we even have it? Right. Well, a leap second uh, is is a recent invention in human in the in the the history of human timekeeping. We used to tell time exclusively by where our planet is in the universe. You know, we used to a day was the, the rise of sun and the, and you know till the till the the setting of the sun or the rise of the sun the next morning. So for for most of our our span as humans, we've told time that way. But in 1967 the metrologists of the world decided that we were going to tell time instead by what's happening inside an atom. And so they set the, the, the length of a second to a certain resonance frequency in a, a type of atom called a cesium-133 atom. And when they did that, they set the second very slightly shorter than the second that the, the sun, that the earth tells as it moves around in its axis in a day. And so every now and again, because we, we, t we tell time officially by the atomic scale, every now and again, 
the atomic scale has to stop for a moment to allow the Earth to catch up. So astronomical time and atomic time have to mesh. You have to get those two time scales in sync. So we've had over over since the the uh, leap second was invented in 1972, we've had a total of 37 leap seconds inserted into the atomic time scale to make it coordinate with astronomical time. So I'm curious to know. Why Why do these scientists, and who were they also, but why did they decide to go to the atomic clock? What was wrong with what you were describing earlier, the sun rises and sets and then you begin a new day, with something that had been around forever? Right, well, there's nothing actually wrong with it, except it's not very precise. Okay. So um, this, and, and actually it's it's a little bit, the rotation of the earth is a little bit irregular. So the, the day, the time of a day is slightly different, you know, over time. If you think about just using the earth as the timepiece, atoms by contrast are extremely precise. They do the same thing all the time. They never wear out. They're kind of the perfect timepieces, actually. So, so so who were the scientists? I, mean, I don't mean by name, but you know, what countries did they come from? What disciplines were they studying or, or, or scholars in and, and, that, and so forth? Who, who, you mean the people who invented atomic time? Yeah, yeah, going back to 67. In, in 19, well, they were, they were American and, and British, actually. They were, they're, the great inventions on this were, were both American and British, and they independently, sort of at the same time, figured out what, um, how they were going to define the atomic second and then, and then did it. Well, so you mentioned how precise the uh, decay of cesium-133 was, uh, and, but we're eliminating the leap second now because right. it's too precise? Is that, is that what's happening here? What we're doing, what we're doing, what they're doing is actually, they're saying that what, what's happened is that, so in, since 1972, when, when they started inserting these leap seconds, society has become ever more interconnected. Digital uh, technologies have taken over uh, it, to a much greater extent. The pre precision of time needs to be greater and greater and greater. And, and so when you try to insert a leap second into this atomic time scale, it turns out that it's incredible incredibly difficult technologically to do it. It's just very, very difficult to insert that time. And so different um, network providers, for example, Facebook, or let's say Meta and Alibaba and different types of uh, digital networks have decided to do it in a different way. It's kind of, they, they figure out their own way of inserting the sleep second. And so it turns out that there's a slight mismatch during the adjustment period among the different networks. So they're telling time slightly differently. And in today's era of hyper-precision and timing, this is really a problem. So the time, the metrologists of our world, who are, they're, they're, who are a fascinating group of people, by the way, they're the most amazing people I've ever spoken with. <laughs> they, they're, they're just, I mean, the, the imagination that these people have is, is extraordinary. Anyway, they have been lobbying for about 20 years. They've said, look, this is getting way too complicated. What we should do is sever, temporarily sever atomic time from astronomical time. So let's do away with the leap second and figure out a better way, eventually, a better way for um, for the two time scales to, to be coordinated. And so what they did just last month at, at a big meeting, a big meeting of, so, so uh, you probably know all this anyway, but, but the nations of the world have signed a treaty 
uh, they signed a treaty back in the 1800s to make sure that measurement is uniform across no matter where you live. So whether you live in Ashtabula, Ohio, or in Singapore, or wherever you got, when you measure a meter, it's the same meter, no matter, no matter where you go. When you measure a second, it's the same second. So there's this uniformity of, of measurement that is, that is really the language of science and commerce and and you know the way we govern our lives is 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 by according to these these basic units of measurement those are all uh, governed by something called the bureau international de mesure et poids uh, de poids et mesure actually so the bipm which is based just outside of, of paris they uh, are the people who set all of these units and the, the signatories to the treaty of the meter are all these countries around the world that say, yes, we, you know, buy into this. We, do, we agree that we, you know, we have this, a way of measuring things. So the metrologists at the BIPM, which is this, this organization just outside of Paris, um, have been for 20 years saying, look, we, there must be a better way to do this, to, to reconcile the timekeeping of the stars with the timekeeping of the atoms. So they've been, they've been lobbying for, you know, a better system. So last month in Versailles, there was a big meeting of all the countries that are signatories to this treaty of the meter. And they decided that they would temporarily do away with the leap second. So they're going to end by, by 2035. So the leap second will not exist anymore. And they'll figure out another way to reconcile the two timekeeping systems. And if I remember correctly, it's a hundred years that they've got to figure out what to do next because it'll be, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a manageable amount of time between now and then that they would have to actually adjust for. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about, though, was why did um, it take so long to do this? You, you mentioned that for 20 years, uh, yeah. The metrologists have been saying we need to we need to do this. Why did it take so long? Well, because it's a really uh, fraught diplomatic process. You've got a couple. Of, you've got a whole bunch of different players here. But one of them, for example, is Russia. So Russia has um, a satellite navigation system called GLONASS. GLONASS incorporates the leap seconds into its time scale. It's the only. Uh, it's the only internet. It's the only. Uh, satellite timekeeping system, satellite navigation system that incorporates leap seconds into this into its into its timekeeping. So GPS, for example, doesn't. Beidou doesn't. Uh, the Galileo, which is a European system, none of these incorporate the leap seconds, but GLONASS does. And so, so Russia is saying, if we do away with the leap second, we have to do a whole bunch of adjustments, not just to software, but to hardware in our satellite navigation system. And they want extra time to do that. So you, you've talked about these metrologists and you clearly are fascinated by them. They sound interesting, creative. Give us sort of a, a portrait of some of them or all of them. What makes them, I guess the word would be, unique and creative what tell oh, us about uh, these I mean, people well I, I just i just i just love talking to them because they are the, the degree of precision that they are capable of the degree of uh imagination that they are capable of is 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 just unparalleled to me i mean i talk to scientists all the time but i'm thinking of one one of them uh who's who's such a joy to talk to is named uh, dr judah levine he's at uh he is uh, at NIST, and and he and he 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 just has this incredible uh, understanding of frequency. 
So, so when we talk about time, we're also talking about frequency. It's not just a time scale. It's it's also the frequency of radio signals, and, and you know, uh, which is a, a again a greater, a much more important way of our understanding of time. Now, it's considered time and frequency, and he he's able to talk about this in a in an extraordinarily passionate and uh, precise way. So, uh, Alana, one of the things that I learned from your article as well is that the rotation of the Earth is actually variable. And, right. and almost in a sort of ironic postscript, uh, they're actually going to have to add a negative leap second uh, because the Earth's rotation has started to accelerate a little bit. Did I, did I read that right? Well, it's, it's kind of complicated. So, essentially... Um, the reason that this leap second has to happen is that astronomical time has been slowing down very, 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 very slightly, very minutely since since about 1972 when the, well, since before that, but they've noticed it very strongly since 1972 when they first started inserting leap seconds. Um, so the, the Earth's rotation has been slowing down. All of a sudden it's slowing down more slowly so that astronomical time is on its own going to catch up with atomic time by about 2030. It, this is part of a pattern, a long-term pattern of slowing down of the Earth's rotations. So it's not that the Earth is going to start speeding up and, and you know, So it's the, the rate of decay is slowing down. Exactly. Okay. And so, and so what, what it really means is that the, is that a, atomic time is stable, of course, it's exactly the same all the time, but astronomical time is catching up to it. And so, Exactly. So by about 2030, if the trends continue, which is a big if, and this is very unpredictable, there's no there's no formula for trying to understand exactly when these changes will happen. But by about 2030, metrologists are in the position of thinking that they're going to have to put uh, insert a negative leap second. So they're going to have to lose a second from the atomic scale instead of adding a second. And this is this is mind bending. If you are <laughs> a digital network, you have to try to figure out how to make a second yeah. disappear in the atomic time scale. And this is this is uh, they're kind of they're kind of worried about it. Actually, we need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist and the author of 20 books. And our guest this week is Alana Mitchell, an award-winning Canadian science writer whose credits include Seasick, a book about the condition of the world's oceans that has been adapted as a critically acclaimed play as well. You might have read Alana's journalism at outlets like the New York Times, The Guardian, National Geographic, and many others. So, Alana, the article we're talking about uh, included um, a, a reference to the Vatican, sort of a divine touch. They were against right. eliminating the leap second. What was what was their case? What was their argument? And and did they finally agree? Oh, I think that they. What what I understand. I mean, it's it's difficult to get a. a for somebody like you know an outsider to get a really good handle on the, on what the Vatican is saying, but when I spoke with um, one of their timekeepers, he he explained to me that it is really an existential issue. So 
philosophical and I love the the paper that that um, that ended up being uh, being being referenced on this that, that was written on this was just full of poetry it was beautiful it was the, the, the sense was that you know humans have constantly have have from the beginning of time felt connected to our place in the universe on the earth in the in the in the heavens as it were and that it would be it would take something away from us to sever that entirely so the vatican as i understand it is saying you know we're we can live with this as long as eventually the two the two time scales will again be reconciled you know so they're they're saying that astronomical time and atomic time are not going to be forever severed but that there will be some way somehow eventually you know, in the future to make those two timescales get together again. Alana, I, you know, so much of your uh, writing uh, touches on this relationship between science and humanity. And I wonder if, if you, it gives you any reason to just sort of think a little bit more broadly about uh, what it means to be human and what is yeah. that relationship between humanity and science? It's the ultimate quest, isn't it? I mean that that is that is what all of my writing is about. It's it's what what makes us human. What um, makes us different from other creatures? What you know? What is our place in this universe? And uh, I mean these these are the questions that endlessly fascinate me. And it's it's one of the things that I I try to to explore. Do you have um, any answers? You know. <laughs> <laughs> because we would love to we would love to have an answer, and so would our audience. Yeah, it it it's it's it's. I guess part of it that I think one of the things I think about, I'm not sure if it's unique to us because there have been other types of humans. There have been Neanderthals and Denisovans and all sorts of other types of, you know, um, creatures who are very similar to us, um, our kin in the world, who may have had huge imaginations and huge creativity. Uh, and we, we certainly know that there has been Neanderthal art, for example. We know that there has been a consciousness of death and death ritual among among other species of humans, types of humans, let's say our kin. But it seems to me that of the creatures now living, this is one of the things that does seem to distinguish us, that we have this ability to think of where we are in relationship to other species and in relationship to not only our own galaxy, not only our own solar system and our galaxy, but the universe. And we're able to imagine and now in some ways actually perceive how the universe came to evolve over time and how we came to be here and that that kind of that kind of enterprise trying to figure out how we came to be here how it all worked you know to to make us come to this moment is um it is fascinating the fact that we even have any language or any science to describe that or any math to describe that to me means that we're set apart to some degree. So that really is the essential question. I mean, there's, there's no question about that. So, so far we've been talking about uh, the issues related to one article you wrote. Uh, but as Jim mentioned in, in, in his introduction, you're an accomplished journalist, playwright, and author. And let's start with the author side of things. Your first book was Seasick. Tell us about that book, what the findings were. Well, actually, that was my second book. Oh, second. I, I'm <laughs> sorry. No, it's fine. Seasick is a book that came out a long time ago. So it came out in 2010 in the U.S. Um, and it, it was it was this um, this passionate 
quest of mine. Again, you know, I keep seeming to go on these quests, but it was this passionate quest to try to figure out what is happening to the ocean. Because I kept, as a journalist, kept reading things about how the ocean was dying. And I thought, oh, come on, there's got to be a much, much bigger story to that. So I just started going on journeys with scientists. So I usually on boats and so I went on 13 journeys in three years with scientists all around the world different places um, on the ocean and on land to try to understand what we're doing what our species is doing to the ocean and it came and I, I you know arrived at the conclusion that we are making it sick but the thing that is so interesting to me about that book is that ultimately it, it, it is about how the carbon load in the atmosphere from our burning of fossil fuels and cutting down trees and things like that, how that load in the atmosphere is affecting the ocean. And that is the most critical thing. Uh, you know, Alana, one of the things that I found fascinating in, your, in learning a little bit about you and your story is that you publish Seasick, you're doing what authors do, you're giving a series of talks and you're selling the book. Uh, and somebody comes to you and says, would you ever consider adapting this into a one person play? And you did that. And so Seasick uh, is now Total a insanity. play. T <laughs> tell, us about, tell us about that experience, both the, the creative process of adapting a, a book like that into a play, but also the performance piece of it. Oh, yeah, it's the hardest thing I do. I have to say it's, it's really the hardest thing I do. I, I, I mean, this, this all started because a, a theater director in Toronto whose name is Franco Bonnie heard me give a talk and I, I was kind of hamming it up a bit, you know, I mean, I was just, you know, giving a talk about the book and, and there are some really funny stories. I mean, scientists are intrinsically fascinating and passionate and funny often. And so, you know, you, you hang around with them and you, you get a lot of stories about, <laughs> about how funny they are. And, and, um, and I had spent a lot of time with, with a bunch of really brilliant scientists when I was writing this book. So I, I just started telling their stories and, and, Franco said, you know, I think we could make this into a play. So, oh, well, I sat in a room with him and with another artistic director whose name is Ravi Jane, and we crafted some of this, the talks. I mean, we, what we did was what we did was tape a whole bunch of the talks that I gave and then figure out which stories would work the best in play. And then we wrote a whole bunch of connected tissue and an intro and a, an ending and, you know, a whole bunch of um, words that are not uh, that are more poetic, I guess, and, and and you know crafted this play out of out of the material, and then of course I had to memorize it. <laughs> <laughs> Eleven thousand words, all in the same order every day. It's it, it, it's 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 a horrifying proposition for a journalist, you know. Which is, I'm not trained for this at all, and. Uh, uh, and you know, as journalists, we're we're trained to 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 use new words all the time to try to figure out new ways of saying things and describing things. And you never tell the same story twice if you're a journalist, right? You're always telling a different story. So there's this philosophical shift to being on stage and you know telling the same story. But also, it's a play that is because it is um, it's very difficult to talk about science and to explain science in a way that people will hear. The play by default became about me, so it's it's my story, and in a in a and so it becomes very personal, very difficult to. Uh, it's one thing to get up on stage and talk about a scientist's research and 
findings. It's another thing to get up on stage and talk about why you, as a journalist, want to tell that story. And that's what the play is about. So, Alana, like you, I'm a journalist and an author. Uh, I cannot imagine writing a play from any of my books, and I certainly cannot imagine performing anything, yeah. nor memorizing 11,000 11, <laughs> words. Hello. How did you learn to do that? What, what is it, how did you become a performer? I mean, that just, to, to me, just seems incredible. You, you know, the funny thing is, the funny thing is that I, I do perform it, but I don't act it. And I don't know if, if it's possible to describe the difference, but when I'm on stage, I'm actually just telling these stories that I, uh, you know, bore witness to as a journalist. And I'm just telling these stories that I love to tell that explain the thing. So it's really me on stage, just as me. I'm not in another character. I'm not trying to be someone else. It's um, so it's the, the thing that makes it work is that I'm not actually acting. And the thing that makes it hard to do is that I'm reliving all of these experiences that I actually went through. Uh, for example, at one point I went 3,000 feet to the bottom of the ocean in a submersible, and you know, which was a terrifying experience. And I'm actually, when I'm on stage, I'm in the submersible, and I'm, <laughs> you know, in that place of terror. Um, so I, I think that's what what makes it work. Uh, and I mean, the other part of it is simply that I'm Irish, you know, by background and storytelling was a huge part of my childhood and my, my family life. You know, Alana, we've got uh, about a minute and a half left here. It, I'm curious, the different types of writing that you do, are there things that you can do in a play that you can't do in a science article or in a book and vice versa? I mean, is there, is there, is it, I guess what I'm asking is, are you sneaking your vegetables in the ice cream? Right? Is it? <laughs> well, that's a strange metaphor. <laughs> well, you know, you know, what's different about performing a play is that it is a conversation. People may not be speaking directly. Sometimes they do talk to me in the play, but, but the fact is that there is this emotional experience that is happening in a small theater where there is an interplay between me and the audience, and the audience is interacting among themselves as they listen to me and so there's this incredible level of emotion and passion that um that is apparent to me on the stage it's funny every single performance is different because every single audience is different and i can feel the emotion that uh is 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 um is being emitted it's a strange thing it's a it's and so you don't get that of course when you're writing uh and you're writing an article or when you're writing a book or any of the other types of writing that I do, that the, the intimacy of live theater is unparalleled. And it's been critically acclaimed. I know you had your American uh, uh, tour uh, last year. Uh, we hope that it comes around again because it sounds remarkable. She is Alana Mitchell, author, journalist, playwright, Thank you so much for being with us today. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook or visit PellCenter.org. We can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square. <laughs>